You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Crypt Times. Today on Crypt Times, we will be listening to Rene Dumares, a undisciplined writer, community organizer, and PhD student, with your hosts, Kayla and Christina. Hi, Rene. Thank you so much for joining Christina and I on Crypt Times this afternoon. Well, it's so nice to be here. So first, like, thanks for having me. First things first. How are you? How are you feeling today? How's the body mind? Today, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm feeling okay. Um, I'm just sitting in this room right now uh, that I like to call my office, but really is like more of a collection of junk room, you know, one of those spaces <laughs> uh, where you just like put everything in your life or in your place that's just been rejected from your life. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we all have one of those, especially working from home right now. Totally. Mm-hmm. And like <laughs> the Zoom life is uh, so funny too, hey? Like if yes. my screen were on like you, and you could see me, there'd be this lovely bookcase behind me. And then to the front of me, there's uh, just like reality, right? The complete wreckage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I saw um, like Twitter posts where people were saying that, you know, news anchors and similar were being like judged hard by the background of their, what was on their bookshelves or or whatever. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, So we are recording this in August, which I believe is month five or six of quarantine amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. So how, how have you been? How has the last few months of quarantine, isolation, surviving a global pandemic been for you? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's been a really wild time, obviously. Um, like so much sadness and hurt and violence. Um, I think a time that like, really has emphasized the deep social injustice that's really always been there, I guess, in new ways. It's sort of um, coming to the surface, lots coming to the surface. Um, Not new stuff though, you know, this stuff has been at the surface um, for many people for a really long time. Me personally, um, yeah, I'm not not too bad. Um, The people around me are mostly well, um, my, uh, mother-in-law lost a close friend to COVID in the early months, but otherwise people are, yeah, people, like people near me are well. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting past few months, um, characterized for me and probably for a lot of people by a ton of disconnection. Um, and also like matched with a whole lot of new connection, different connection, you know, whether that's like organizing online in new spaces, um, or like virtual stuff, just all the virtual accessibility and the connection that that's sort of made possible in new ways. Um, and then just like connecting differently or more, um, with more intention and care to my family or friends or partner. Uh, you know, for a while there, I was like waking up and calling my parents every day at seven um, and just hanging out, uh, spending time with people um, that I care about, either on Zoom or like with, you know, like my partner watching Netflix or something, you know, nothing like terribly romanticized or like, um, sorry, nothing terribly romantic or rose colored, but just getting, um, having space to get bored with people and the sort of the seeds of connection um, that are sort of planted in boredom. Someone said that one time, and I, I, I wish I remember who it was. So if you know, please let me know right now. But that really stuck with me and jumped out to me a lot. How about you, Kayla, Christina? Have you been holding up? I mean, this is Christina speaking. Um, it's been interesting. Um, 
I live in Toronto in a relatively small but also very lovely apartment. Um, and I think definitely going into August, the like monotony of living in the same 700 square feet for six months and never leaving um, got a little bit heavy. And it's just been trying to like find uh, ways to like shoulder the weight of that heaviness. Mm. Um, and I think that in many years past, I would have just like not ask for support and just try to be like independent in all of this but I think for me in the last four years of working in disability spaces and community spaces I really learned that like when things feel heavy to like speak on that and like speak on when I'm feeling sad or when I'm feeling overwhelmed or just exhausted by the work of being a human and I just found like having those honest conversations with my community members um maybe not made anything lighter, but had just made it a little bit easier to carry that weight with a little bit more uh, support. So mm. I've really felt all the negative feelings of like quarantine and isolation, but I've also just felt like I've had the space to ask my community for help in ways that I wasn't comfortable with a few years, even a few months ago. Mm, that's mm. that's super powerful yeah mm -hmm. oh, this is Kayla speaking um this year's been real tough the whole year's been really hard um for personal reasons beyond the pandemic too but um I remember feeling at the start of the pandemic that it that the you know stay home orders felt um, I remember saying to a few friends like, oh, this is just kind of sometimes what life is like for me in the winter as a disabled woman, physically disabled, um, where, you know, if we have a few weeks or a month where um, it's so icy and it's so cold that I literally can't walk down my own street, like I'm no stranger to feeling stuck in the house, not that it makes it any easier. Um, but that was really interesting to observe other people's reactions to um, to being stuck at home as someone who feels like that's not always, it wasn't that unfamiliar to me in some ways. Um, but I agree with Christina that I feel really fortunate that I have, um, first of all, a bunch of really amazing relationships, people who are really excellent at communicating through like the written word, like you know, to be able to text people anywhere in the world um, and still feel connected in those ways is really a privilege. And I don't know, I think like friendships, like Christina and I, I live in Guelph. Mm. Um, we, don't, we don't see each other in person that much anyway. So I have a lot of relationships that were already existing in sort of online spaces, but those yeah. were definitely deepened out of necessity for sure. But um yeah oh my god the lack of like human contact is is kind of bleak at times <laughs> for sure <laughs> totally yeah. totally for sure and like ongoing right yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah um so you were talking about boredom as planting seeds which i think is really beautiful and i wonder in what other ways being in quarantine has impacted your processes for your work or your creative life or what have you? Yeah, uh, so like my process um, when there's not a global pandemic is uh, absolutely and utterly chaotic <laughs> and completely out of control, fairly painful. Um, and honestly, the pandemic hasn't really changed that period. Um, hmm. Still at home, still struggling like hell, um, hmm. like, you know, sort of pulling one strand of hair out at a time, metaphorically speaking, with every word that I had to put on the paper. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it was like that before and still sort of is. But the one thing that the pandemic um, has sort of shifted at times is that it's yeah given me some space um i guess before things shut down 
I was really foot on the gas and like not in a hero's journey kind of way, but in a way that just like wasn't serving me mm. and, or anybody else for that matter. And was definitely a reaction to the spaces that I was in and the pressures that I was experiencing. Um, I'm doing a PhD right now and like navigating that space as a mad or neurodiverse person can feel pretty brutal at times. I mean, like it can feel, I think, pretty brutal um, no matter what you're carrying. Um, but yeah, like I think that the space has let me think about um, or maybe relate to the chaos a little differently. Um, mm. And, you know, to be clear, I don't really know the first thing about chaos theory, but something that I heard and that I've been thinking about and find interesting or um, that's really resonated lately is this idea that, um, you know, chaos is this like big blank sort of nothingness, this expense. Um, but chaos can also be understood, um, whereas maybe like the other side of the same coin, as a like formless mass, um, like a formless mass that existed before the universe sort of came into being. Mm. Um, and so create like contained all of the ingredients. Mm. And I think that before, um, like all I could really relate to was that uh, nothingness and there's nothing wrong with nothing, but I was really experiencing that as a, lack as a mm. just a real problem and I think that I don't know being able to sort of just uh, live my days a little bit differently for parts of the last couple months um, I've been able to just like relearn or re-familiarize myself with the kind of ebbs and flows of my systems and thought processes um, to not only experience experience the blank, but actually see like the magic center too, like all the, the ingredients are there um, and really be able to hold that with a new appreciation. Um, mm. But you know, my days like have often looked very similar uh, in terms of like, yeah, I, I worked at home before, I still am at home in a lot of ways, um, but my partner's around more and just the, the external world has shifted, of course. Um, but yeah, the like re-familiarizing myself with my my own sort of processes has been uh, impactful, I think. Spoken like a true poet. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's me segueing. Um, <laughs> I know. Kayla, that was an absolutely beautiful segue. Can't wait to see where it's, you take this. It's where, a perfect segue. Where could this be going, this conversation? Um, yeah, so I know you do writing as a PhD student in an academic capacity, um, but you've been writing some poetry too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, poetry has been super cool to play with. I've kind of like picked it up, laid it down um, over and over the past couple of years. Really love it. Uh, but I've tried, or I don't know if I've tried, but I've started to spend more time with it, take it a little bit more seriously uh, the last little while. And that's been healing and also just like fun and exciting. Um, I find that related to the chaos, my ideas often come out or even form in fragments. So like bite-sized pieces that have maybe fallen off of some larger whole idea. Uh, and often I don't even know necessarily what <laughs> that big hole is um, as the fragments are coming out. And so poetry is just as like, and as a medium is really supports that uh, sort of like nonlinear mess, both as an aesthetic and also for me as a, as a process. Mm -hmm. So I like write, uh, 
I read a lot about hysteria uh, coming at it from a couple of different perspectives and, you know, thinking about how it relates to gender and race or, um, you know, the political economy, whether it's in the history or sort of in the contemporary context. And if I'm writing about hysteria um, in an essay or something, then I've really got to lay out my ideas in a linear structure and piece together my thinking in a way that lines up and makes sense for people, either chronologically or thematically, um, finding a way to sort it all, right? That just works in terms of communicating. And poetry lets me arrive somewhere in a more piecemeal way. And I wrote this piece in uh, quarantine about hysteria because I was noticing that, and maybe you notice this too, but just headlines everywhere um, related to COVID-19 that had the word hysteria in it, in the mm -hmm. title or in the, you know, in the, in the text itself, um, in the body of the article. And I was just so caught on it because it was always used disconnect, like it was disconnected from historical context of like what historic, like what, sorry, it was disconnected from context of how, uh, how hysteria has been used. Um, but what it, what was, what remained the same um, between the current use of hysteria and the historical use of hysteria was that it was supporting uh, conservative sort of white supremacist views and positions on things like immigration or global capitalism, um, sorry, in support of global, global capitalism. And poetry um, allowed me to just bring the different pieces I saw together. And I like took, you know, words or phrases from a bunch of different articles and just started compiling them in a document and didn't really know what I was saying until the pieces sort of came together and I was able to offer a, like a commentary or counter hmm. thought to the narrative that I was seeing in the articles. Um, but I didn't really know, yeah, I didn't really know where I was going till I got there. And so this sort of fragmented um, approach to thinking wasn't just about presentation, but also about process and um, the message that I sort of, not the message, but like the, the place that I arrived or we'll say stopped over because certainly I'm not stopping there forever. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. And I also think that there's like a lot of utility in that kind of a broken approach. Um, mm. Yeah. Because it's like the value of fragments in this current moment um, and every moment, because it's a little bit reflective of what's actually there. You know, we try to just package stuff in a way that um, is clean and uh, digestible, but really like shit's complicated always. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. our thought processes are complicated and we sometimes have to, I sometimes have to um, make them appear differently. Uh, but when we're engaging in conversations like about COVID-19, about, yeah, medical and psychiatric violence, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous violence, like these are, these are big conversations. And, and I think that like the messiness is important when we're trying to connect with one another and just imagine new ways of being together and taking accountability. Yeah, that's uh, really beautiful. I wanna kind of come back to uh, what you said about shit being complicated and our, our thoughts are being complicated. Um, how does leaning into mad politics and mad aesthetics, crit politics, 
correct aesthetics, um, support the complicated nature of our thoughts, our bodies, our minds, the shit that we currently are living through. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so many ways. Um, so many ways. I mean, first of all, just the imagining how we do things from a mad and crip position, understanding, of course, that there is no like um, universal mad or crip position. Mm-hmm. Um, that itself, of course, is is fragmented. But that those that the, that the range of politics um, and and values create spaces um, and processes that are inclusive and mm. to like just to a range of, of bodies and minds, mm-hmm. but that aren't just inclusive. Or maybe it's that to be actually inclusive, we need that to be, to be actually inclusive. It's about also, of course, engaging in critique about like where ideas of if we're talking about madness, like where ideas of reason or rationality come from, you know, or how are different bodies or minds like differently surveilled um, in relation to like all of the other structures and systems of power and violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know um, you are involved in Crip community in many ways, um, creatively and professionally, and I really hope you can tell people a little bit about Crip Rave and what you've built in that space and, and what that what that is. Yeah. Uh, so Crip Rave is something myself and Stefana Fertilia um, started. We had our first one in August 2019 uh, as part of Bricks and Glitter. We did it at Unit 2. It was a blast. Mm. Um, but I met Stefana at, we met at Sick Theories in 2018. And yeah, that was that like community conference. And we really like connected, hit it off. And we were hanging at her place sometime afterward and having a conversation about how we both really love um, electronic music spaces and rave spaces, but also how notably inaccessible they are. And so so Stefana is a DJ and a sound artist, and I am not a DJ or a sound artist, but I am a community organizer. (laughs) And so we tossed around um, this really loose version of what Crip Brave ended up being. And we're both just like super excited about it, you know, both like the possibility of creating an accessible rave space that like just tended to the range of people's needs and desires, you know, like earlier start times, endings start earlier as well, you know, places to sit or stretch on the floor, Mm. having harm reduction supplies out and available a, like a range of things to eat and drink hmm. um just as a chronically hangry person that would be a huge draw for mm, me yeah <laughs> and so of course right like mm. it was important to be thinking about like venue space um as a um really important thing and also thinking about um what else, right? Like what else makes the space accessible? Getting in the door um, and once we're inside, what, what, what do people need? Um, and yeah, just like imagining what that could be like. And then on top of that, also just like centering crip and mad, um, sick, deaf, disability visions about what could be possible when sound and disability come together right like you like the Mm. like all just like the aesthetics of of that um not just like including these things into what rave spaces already are but 
sort of tapping into the possibility of what it could be um, felt like, yeah, really moving um, and exciting. Um, yeah. That's so cool. And I know you got a bit of coverage and um, like people were talking about this when it happened. What was the reception like from the Crip community and beyond? Mm, I, I mean, yeah, it was so cool to connect with people at the party and then afterward. Uh, it seemed like people were really excited about it. Um, and it seemed like people really loved the party, loved the vibes, the music, um, really were, you know, excited about the access and the art and how those things came together. Um, yeah, I think it was, I think that, I mean, the feedback was like super positive and encouraging. We were gonna do uh, a second one in, oh my goodness, was it March or April? I'm blanking right now. Um, but as in COVID yeah, times. exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, we're going to plan an after party for, as part of images festival, we will hopefully be back in early 2021. Yeah. And I'm excited to just like, you know, try some new things, some like DJing and music production, sound production workshops. Um, yeah, because like, you know, the education and like skill sharing feels like a really, mm -hmm. really important piece. Um, you know, we know that like disabledism impacts who we see on like represented on bills um, because people's accessibility needs are just not met. Uh, and also, uh, you know, there's, there's like all kinds of other structural stuff that is about people even knowing that this is an option. Um, and I say this, of course, um, also knowing that crip, mad, disabled, deaf, sick folks have been experimenting and like crushing sound and music mm -hmm. all along. You know, this is like not new. Uh, so we're just sort of mm -hmm. trying to contribute to that and be a part of that and build community and connect with community that already exists. When it comes to um, crit community, disabled bodies, disabled minds, mad folks, deaf folks, chronically ill folks, um, oftentimes we experience a lot of inclusion. Or we experience a lot of exclusion and, and we know how to name that. We can say oh, it's a building with stairs or um, washrooms that are inaccessible or even uh, gender specific washrooms. But inclusion is kind of hard to name with a checklist, but you know when you feel included. As a community organizer with Crick Grave specifically, what ways do you ensure that your community feels included? Such an important question. And, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is that work is just never done. And I don't say that as like a excuse, you know, it's, it's just the reality that it's never done. Um, the process of that feels never done for me anyways, of the reassessing always how a space has been inclusive or exclusive and then finding ways to respond to that. Um, you know, like at, at the first Crip Rave, um, we realized that when we were in the space, just the you know, the, the range of access needs and in terms of like sound volume being one example, right? Um, mm -hmm. And supporting what felt, um, what was necessary for people to be in that space and feel 
safest and had had most at most access to it in terms of like the sound volume. And so sound was not like we, we ran into this thing where we, the sound was too loud. And at the same time, it also wasn't loud enough, depending on, you know, what people needed. And we realized that we forgot to get earplugs. You know what I mean? Like that was just a, mm. like, we were like, how did we forget to get earplugs? Um, when I go out, I always take earplugs with me. And so that I can sort of even just, you know, put them in, take them out, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, and so, you know, in that moment, it was like my partner just ran to shoppers and got like a bunch of earplugs. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes you can't respond in the moment. Um, that just won't be good enough. Sometimes you can. But I think what feels important is just always reassessing and listening and knowing that there's always there's always more work to be done right um because accessibility is different for all of us but it's also different um often like for me what's what i what my accessibility needs are one moment or different from the next um and it i think that like ongoing community dialogue and also working with different people for different events um and and as the project grows we learn more about what um what we're doing and, and how to how to do it i think that that's sort of just the the, the work of the process um yeah like still have lots of work to do around like deaf accessibility um Mm. that's a huge piece that we're sort of still thinking about and have and need to make connections around and uh and there's others yeah totally other other things that are work in progress yeah it just also feels important to be like as, as a part of the process to be contemplating what accountability means to when we just inevitably mm. um mess up or cause harm uh yeah, that's a really important uh, important question. And yeah, just just I think being humble enough to recognize that we're all gonna mess up, and all we need to not all we need to do, but the best way we can respond is to say like, "Oh, thanks for letting me know. Like, I made mm -hmm. a note of that, and we're gonna do better next time. Like, how can I help?" Kind of thing. Totally. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, and not like you know airing your guilt to the person who, you know, who, who, mm -hmm. who says, who speaks up or, um, cause that's always such a generous thing to be told how you can do better next time. It's like the, the risk mm -hmm. that people take on to actually give you that information. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think because like our society, we don't really have any systems in place to hold people accountable that isn't punishment. Um, and so we don't, as humans, like accountability isn't an equal to punishment and punishment isn't an equal to accountability. And I think um, current community is kind of leading the way of what it looks like to be accountable to shortcomings and learnings. Um, and I think it just, it even in our holding ourselves accountable, we need to hold ourselves accountable that that's going to fall short at some point too. Um, and just like leaning into the fact that this work is a never ending process and that's what's great about it because there's always more for all of us to grow. And there's kind of that like hopeful idea in being held accountable that there is room to improve and room to do better by both ourselves and our communities. To like totally, that resonates so powerfully for me. Um, and the knowledge that, and skills that we can share between uh, communities, right? Like, you know, having like all of the incredible conversation right now around defunding the police and imagining other ways for, yeah, like justice and accountability and um, like 
black indigenous and women of color um, have been doing these processes and thinking these thoughts um, for so long. And certainly Mad and Crip, black indigenous and women of color. Um, and so the opportunities to, yeah, just for dialogue, for conversation, for like, just exchange. And also just like noticing, tending to, yeah, like the intersections of all of this stuff, right? Yeah, so we've just got a couple questions left for you today. Um, and I have been so inspired by you since we first met, which was almost two years ago now. I was co-facilitating a digital storytelling workshop with the Revision Center out of the University of Guelph. And you were a participant in that space. And you made an absolutely stunning film that I know went on to be shown in film festivals. Um, you know, a person of many talents. Um, do you want to share with our readers and listeners what yeah, that was that all Yeah, that was about? the best. Like that uh, like workshop or few days of learning was so special for me. Meeting you and like the rest of the crew was just, yeah, it really was the best. First time in Guelph too. And like, what a beautiful campus. <laughs> yes. Um, so many trees. It was really beautiful. Even though it was also December, but I remember there was definitely was, leaves on the trees. Were you like filming still. outside in the snow? That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was. Yes. And I was like, they're really green. Um, yeah. Uh, so that digital story, yeah, I submitted it to a couple of um, film festivals. It played at the Montreal Feminist Film Festival and um, one in Oaxaca, Mexico, which was mm. really exciting for me, my first um, film festival. And that was great. The, the, it was called Painful Perception and it was, Basically, I just put moving image to uh, a poem that I'd written and it was related to my experience uh, with like gender and chronic vulva pain, vulvodynia, and thinking through some of those pieces, the way that pain has shifted my perspective in different ways, um, both in ways that have been generative and awesome and other ways that have been really tough and lots of overlap as usual. But that was, uh, that was cool. I mean, also that workshop was also really neat for me because just how accessible I found it. Like mm. with my, the way my mind operates, sometimes like computer programs and stuff, I'm just like, nope, that, they don't work for me. My, I don't do that. I can't learn that. I didn't learn how to like download a song on the internet oh. until, well, ever really. <laughs> and so the thought Lime of wire, like, I don't know her. Like, <laughs> well, this is that, this is it, right? Like truly though, I didn't do it. And I should have, trust me, based on just like, when I grew up and right. what was happening at that time. <laughs> but I was just like, no, I can't, don't know how. And so like the thought of learning Final Cut Pro was just impossible. Uh, but it felt super possible with the support and just like the way things were set up. Um, yeah, I like mm. loved it. And also really am excited to incorporate film or video um, again with my work and mm. just wouldn't have even considered that as an option without having uh, visited the revision center and work with you folks. But I don't know, I like, yeah, feel like I have my, I have like one toe in multiple different buckets and <laughs> like, yes, my practice feels just as sort of fragmented as my thoughts. And that is both 
fun and exciting and also just like makes me get to feel like a little bit of a fraud in everything (laughs) (laughs) yeah the imposter syndrome is real oh it is like the realest shit ever um (laughs) and I could be like yeah it's not real it's fine like but it's and it is fine and also it's like who am I trying to kid you know um yeah but also like somebody reframed this to me quite a few years ago when I was talking about my own imposter syndrome and they were like yeah but like imposter syndrome can be reframed as a really good thing because mm. it means that you have space to grow in the space that you are already occupying. So it's like where you are taking up space allows you to grow. And I think this idea that like we need to overcome imposter syndrome or like be in spaces that don't make us feel like imposters, it's like, what if we just leaned into what an offering of being in a room that made us feel like we had to grow could offer our personal growth. Hmm. Yes. 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 And also offer community when we are not like, mm-hmm. we don't, we, we're not pretending to be experts or think we're experts. Right. Um, yeah, I, t- I love that so much. Like, because I am so much more likely to listen when I'm not so sure of myself. Mm-hmm. I was actually getting some like education. I'm a social worker um, Mm. and was starting up a, like a, like starting to see clients um, in a counseling practice. And I was getting some extra like education around that um, from someone who's been doing it for a long time and was talking about some of these feelings of like being an imposter and insecure and, very similar to what you're saying, Christina, Uh, you know, she shared that it's really good to be insecure um, when you're offering uh, care or um, a service to somebody that involves a high level of trust. And I really loved that because I don't know, I have a really complicated relationship to just social work in general and all of the related practices of like counseling and psychotherapy, um, just because of the like violence that is also connected to um, quote unquote, helping professionals, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, just like, amount of harm is unreal but I thought that was a cool piece of feedback around insecurity Mm. uh as like an ethic in some way Mm. that's really cool yeah I Christina your comments and Renee's yours too have reminded me that I I saw imposter syndrome reframed another way which was um if you're in a space or in relationship with folks and and you feel like an imposter, it's like, well, don't you trust them? Like whether it's your mentor or your peers or your teacher, they they probably asked you to be there. Like they want you to be there because they believe in you and whether that's your current ability or your potential to grow, um, you know, like they, it's not an accident. You, it's not like you stumbled into something, chances are, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can reframe your faith in your community and your mentors as well, then it's a way to kind of like reverse engineer your own confidence. (laughs) I mean, I got to tell you, this is just like great in terms of my own feelings around you asking me to be on this podcast. Because I I was like, "Mm, oh my God, are you sure? (laughs) That's really, that's really awesome. Yeah, the honor is ours. Mm, no, all mine. Truly. Um, so, Renee, we talked a lot about arts and community and a little bit about academia um, and yourself and your process. What is your dream for the spaces that you occupy? What would you like to see 
and envision in a future for art spaces, for quick grade spaces, for academia, for social work? What are, what's the vision, what is the dream? Ooh, a really small question though. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I mean, I don't, there isn't, there's certainly not one answer for that, but there's also not one answer for those spaces. Um, mm -hmm. My dream for some of those things you mentioned is like that they wouldn't exist anymore, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and for other things <laughs> that they just like, that, they, that we'd all invest in them, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I'm being vague on purpose there, but right. the, the, uh, yeah, I listening to, I think the thing that ties it together though, for me right now in this moment anyways, is, uh, listening to each other's dreams. Um, that feels like a necessary point of or part of uh, a collaborative praxis that I think that we've been talking about like you know listening um, and I think that's continues to be a big part of it but also like listening in the active sense right um, mm. like listening and responding and not not just taking and listening um, but like what do we do about it and yeah, like coming full circle with the the fragments um, holding all of the the fragments about the in, in terms of the answers that will inevitably come from that. Um, and then listening some more to all of the crip, mad, queer, black, indigenous, people of color, um, answers to the question of how we hold all those fragments um, mm. and be together and build together. Mm. Uh, for me, so much of that is about like building the skills to just bear the unbearable in mm. terms of, yeah, just all of the unbearable, you know? and then some of just the like awkwardness uh, and discomfort and uncertainty because those things actually just like really can take over. Mm -hmm. And my work right now is about like digging into those things in a way that is uh, like how to show up in the spaces that I, that I organize or think in or just like, like you know, love in both in like political spaces or art spaces or even just like you know relationships with my like most intimate and cherished people um how do i do that how do i do those things from a place of like real vulnerability and not performed vulnerability um mm -hmm. Yeah, because so much, I mean, I feel like that's like in fashion right now, uh, vulnerability to some degree. And that's amazing, yeah. I yeah. think. You know, that's awesome, truly. We need that. And when anything becomes really popularized, it also becomes corporatized and um, capitalized on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we lose we lose it, right? It's, it's the same with like diversity and inclusion to a lot of, in a lot, like, it's the same with diversity and inclusion um, in a lot of ways in a lot of spaces. Like those things are necessary and politically uh, critical. And then they also become like selling points or like how a yeah. company gets, you know, like goodwill. Or like uh, when a monetized. band has a pride float. <laughs> like, yes, right? Um, totally. It's like brought to like, you by. Yeah and becomes the actual tool to yeah. how dominance gets reinforced right and so for me it's like okay well vulnerability like how do i do that honestly uh, mm. because i can only start with you know what i can do 
um, in terms of, I don't have the answers for anybody else. Uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And so in spite of all these struggles and tensions and uh, these unprecedented times, oh my goodness. <laughs> quite simply, what is bringing you joy right now? Yeah, so I got a dog. Um, like what's the May, end of May, Ugh. Bernadette. Oh my god! And she's like a boxador. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, boxer, a boxador, so a Labrador boxer. Oh my god, I love her. I know, I love her so much, and I am truly the least suspecting person to ever get a dog. I was like, couldn't have been more indifferent about dogs um, up until May 27th or whenever I got her. And then was just like kind of joking. We actually babysat my partner's, um, like a colleague's, a colleague of my partner's um, dog, like last year. And I started to joke about it since then. And then it got real serious after being, um, you know, home for a couple of months. Anyhow, so I got her. She's great. She really like brings me so much joy. I find I, we go to the dog park every day and I, I've grown to like look forward to it so much for so many reasons. I mean, it brings me into my body in ways that feel good. Um, and also like such a little microculture there. Like I go and <laughs> I see culture. people. Yes. It's fascinating. <laughs> like I'll go and see people who I see sometimes several times a week right. and I don't know their names, but I know their dog's names. Mm -hmm. And I notice I'm like, the least judgmental version of myself um, when I'm when I'm there. I like just have like beautiful thoughts about people, and I get to hang out with people who I wouldn't normally see. Probably, it's uh, really cool. And as I go back into, you know, as things start to pick up, um, the last few weeks have just sort of picked up a bit, and some of these like some of the awesomeness I've I tapped into over uh, you know over the last few months. Um, at different points has felt farther and further away. And I'm like really wanting to hold on to that. Also realizing the sort of structural pieces around why it's difficult to do that are real. But I think that just joy and wasting time. Uh, I don't think it's actually wasted time, but like wasting time according to some people's standards uh, it's a, such an important thing to do. And uh, my dog really gives me no choice but to do that actually. Um, Cause she just wants to hang out and flick a ball, you know? Crip Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art Plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday, wherever good podcasts can be found. <laughs>